morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your scriptures, Luke chapter 2. You're going to look at, read through verses 1 through 7. As you'll see in a, in a moment, that this is uh, a very familiar passage. Uh, Christmas is uh, the day after tomorrow. Like it or not, it is, it is here. Uh, believe it or not, it is here. And you are going to hear this uh, passage. Uh, perhaps your family reads uh, something from the scriptures uh, about the life of Christ and about his birth. This is probably uh, the go-to passage uh, that we go to to read and to be reminded of, of why we have Christmas and what we're celebrating. And so to, to set it up, let me set it up with this uh, story maybe. Uh, one of our favorite Christmas movies, and famous has some good Christmas movies, um, that we watch year after year, at least the last handful of years, has been the movie Elf. Elf, if you're not familiar with it, um, I don't know if that makes you normal or not. Um, Elf is played by uh, Will Ferrell, and he is uh, plays the character Buddy the Elf. Uh, he has grown up in the North Pole in Santa's house, I guess, and uh, living amongst elves thinking he is an elf, even though he's like five feet taller than everybody and bumping into the ceiling all the time. Well, one day he finds out that he's really not an elf, and uh, his dad is somewhere in New York City, and so he goes to New York City to, to find his dad. He's got a lead. He finds his dad, and he tracks him down, and he finds out, too, that he has uh, a, a brother, a younger brother, I guess, named Michael. Now, it, Michael's probably middle school age. Now, if you're a middle school age boy and you find out that you have uh, a brother that thinks he's an elf and he shows up in, I think, with a green tights or yellow tights, dressed in full elf gear, uh, you might be a little bit hesitant to embrace him and uh, feel comfortable around him. One day, uh, Michael's coming out of school and, and Buddy the Elf wants to, to hang out with Michael and uh, he's sitting across the street and uh, he sees Michael come out of the school building there. Again, it's a downtown city environment. He stands up off the stoop and he starts shouting his name, Michael, Michael, Michael. And Michael sees him and he just does one of these. And, uh, you know, he's with his friends, he's with his buddies, and he just, just pretends that he's not there and he starts to walk on. And, of course, you can't stop Buddy the Elf. I mean, nothing can stop him. And so he catches up with Michael and they're walking through this Central Park uh, area. I guess it's Central Park. And Buddy is trying to do his best, asking him questions and trying to talk to him and have fun with him. And, and Michael's just not having anything to do with it. He's just embarrassed. He just, this is really weird and doesn't know what to do with it. And then all of a sudden, a snowball comes out of nowhere and just smacks him right in the chest or hits him. And Michael just rolls his eyes. He's like, oh, no, I know these guys. These guys are trouble, and, and we got to get out of here. But Buddy the Elf, being Buddy the Elf, says, no way. This is going to be really fun. And so he says, Michael, you... They duck behind this rock, and he says, start making some snowballs. You'll make, remember this scene. And camera pans onto Michael, and he's making one snowball. You know, he's spent all this time making this one snowball. And then it pans over to, to Buddy the Elf, and he's got like a dozen snowballs in his arms, and he is ready to go to town. I mean, it's like rapid-fire machine gun. He just hitting everybody, just snowball on target after snowball after snowball, just hitting all these targets. And Michael looks at me as like he's just in awe. He had no idea that Buddy the Elf had this snowball game, that he could really bring the heat like this. And he's just amazed by it. And it's a, it's a turning point in their relationship. He's like, this guy is cool. And they go on and hang out all day long. And it's a turning point because, A, Buddy the Elf is, is fun. 
Uh, he's got mad snowball skills. And then Michael is just like, he likes me. He cares for me. He's, he wants to hang out with me. He wants to spend time with me. Now, I get this is, this is kind of a goofy story, and it's a goofy kind of movie, but it does serve to illustrate how powerful it is when you find out somebody cares about you, they're concerned about you, that they are thinking about your interests. It's a real turning point. And for us as believers, spiritually speaking, that, that turning point comes in our lives when God uses his word and he communicates to us how much he loves us, how much he cares for us. And so as we think about this passage from Luke chapter 2, it's so familiar. And it, it's, 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 we hear it all the time. It's a passage you expect to hear when we celebrate Advent, celebrate uh, Christmas. Uh, think about what it's communicating. Think about the, the love, uh, the power Uh, and the initiative that it's communicating to us uh, as believers. And hear that, and maybe it'll be a turning point as we pursue God and look to him. As you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. Let's hear God's word. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea Judea, in Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who who he was pledged to be married to him and and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father God, we uh, pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that you would be present with us. And as that uh, hymn we heard a moment ago, the refrain of all is well, this passage and these promises would give us reason to believe and know in our heart of hearts that all is well because of what you have done and what you're doing for us. In Christ's name, amen. You please be seated. I am willing to guess that for many of us in this room, uh, it's been a good year. And you think about Christmas, you think about the week ahead, and you're excited. Uh, There's a sense of joy. You've had a great year. Your friends are in a good place. You're in a good place. You're uh, looking forward to this week, some time off, uh, time for maybe some football and time time with family. Uh, You're just in a good place. But there may be some in this room where, you know, you would say this hasn't been a good year, and you're not as excited about uh, this Christmas and this season. Uh, it's the first year that you've maybe gone into the season or maybe a number of years where you've lost somebody of significance in your life. And there's a sense of just melancholy as you think about uh, this Christmas and, the, and this, this time that we're in right now. Or maybe there's something going on in your life where it, there's a distraction there. Your marriage, your work life, or uh, 2019 just looks very uncertain. There's some big questions, some big gaps that need to be filled or you're just frustrated by something. There's something that is just, quite frankly, has you really angry and disturbed, and you just can't get your mind off of it. 
regardless of where you're coming from, whether you're coming from a good place this Christmas going into it, or not such a good place, or maybe just a mixture of both. There's stuff you're excited about, stuff that you dread at the same time. As we approach this passage, what I'm hoping we'll see, and what I think we can see, is God giving us something. God showing us something about himself. And what I mean by that, that God would, would show us something about himself to give us a, a deeper sense of confidence in him. Again, some of us are coming from a great place. We're feeling rock solid in our spiritual lives. Some of us are coming where we just feel very fragile in our spiritual lives. There, is, there, are, there are truths in this passage that, regardless of where we're at, can give us a deeper confidence in who God is and what he's able to do in our lives. And I think we'll see this confidence as we think about three things uh, from this passage, as we think about the time of Jesus' birth, as we think about the place of Jesus' birth, and as we think about the circumstances of Jesus' birth. Those three things, time, place, and circumstance, are our outline. And I think as we move through them, we have great reason to be confident in the Lord and grow deeper in our confidence in him. So first, uh, think about uh, the time of Jesus' birth. Think about how Luke introduces this passage. He doesn't say, once upon a time. He doesn't start off by saying, in a galaxy far, far away. How does he start off? Look at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. And in other words, Luke is saying to us, let me tell you some history. Let me tell you about what really happened in our world, in our space, in our time. Here is the beginning of Jesus' birth, and it's marked by what? It's marked by a census. It's marked by the government saying, we need to take a census. It's a common thing. It's not an unusual thing for the government to, to issue such a decree and, and call for its uh, citizens to participate in that. It's not such a big deal. But I'm willing to bet, and I'm sure, that when he issued that decree, he had no idea what he was starting he had no idea the dominoes that would fall after that. By issuing that decree, he's beginning to turn the world upside down. In the sense that by making that decree, Joseph and Mary have to travel, and they have to travel to Bethlehem. And that has to be the place where the Messiah is to be born. We'll get into the reason of that in a moment as we talk about the place. But for us to, to think about uh, the principle that we see in this passage is this. That God is at work in the big and small things to bring about his plan. Here is God using uh, a political system and politics, if you will, to get a family to travel so a son can be born at that place and at that time. God orchestrating events. And he orchestrates those events in our lives as well. Big and small details, all to carry out his plan. There's a, a story of... Uh, reminded of Pastor Tim Keller, who pastored a church in, in New York City, uh, talks about or shares how he became Presbyterian. He was in a seminary in, in Massachusetts, uh, Gordon Conwell. In his last semester, there was a professor up there that tipped the scales for him theologically, so to speak, and he said, after taking the class and interacting with this uh, professor, he said, I've got to be Presbyterian. This is where God's leading me. Becomes Presbyterian and eventually plants a church in New York, which plants other churches. And he has this great ministry, and lives are changed through that ministry, all because in that class he became Presbyterian. And then Keller digs a little bit deeper and he says, 
well, how did I, why is it that uh, this faculty member was able to influence me like he had been? This professor was British. Um, he was raised in England and came over to teach at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And Keller would say that that uh, professor to be there, a lot had to happen. This professor would testify to that, you know, when he was in England trying to get to America, trying to get into this position, uh, the many days that he spent standing in line at the American uh, embassy trying to get a passport, trying to get over to uh, America to come and teach. And at the time, I don't know all the details, it was difficult to get a passport to, to move over because, in essence, you had to, to show, if you wanted to go in America and, and work here, you had to, to prove somehow why is it that you can do this job uh, better than any other American that's already there. And so there was this high hurdle to try and come over to, to the States here. Well, one day he's waiting in line, waiting in line, and he hears his name being called. And this fellow comes out to him, he finds him, and he says, today's the day that you are going to get your American passport. Uh, you're going to be able to go because the higher-ups have come down, and they want this to happen. So he gets back and gets all the paperwork done, and, and the higher-ups, higher sure enough, have made this happen. Well, who are the higher-ups? The higher-ups came from a man named Mike Ford. Mike Ford was uh, a student at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary where this faculty member was trying to get to. But Mike Ford was also the son of Gerald Ford, the president of the United States. That's the connection. And because he was uh, the son of the president, he was, the president was able to pull some strings to get him to come over and teach there. But he goes a little bit further. How did Ford get into office? Well, Ford got into office because Nixon had to resign over the Watergate affair or the Watergate scandal. Well, why was there a Watergate scandal? It's because some burglars uh, messed with the door, and they left it in such a way that the guard was able to come by and find out that somebody had been messing with this room and in this space, all because of a guard. So Keller will basically say the reason he's a Presbyterian minister and the reason he's been able to plant churches and God's been able to use him is because a guard saw a, a door that was ajar, a door that wasn't how it should be, which started the Watergate scandal, which got Nixon out of office, which got Ford into office, which got this professor there. The point is what? God uses our circumstances. He is in control of all things to bring about his plan. Whether it's something big or whether it's something small, he uses all these things in our lives. He's using the everyday events to bring about his plan in your life. And I hope this encourages you because there's nothing that you can do in your life where God's going to say, you know what, game over. Forget it. I'm pulling the plug on you know, me trying to pursue this individual because... They are just doing these ridiculous things, and I'm just done with it. It's too much of a knot. I can't do anything about it anymore. Uh, nothing is too big for him to solve. If he can be trusted to orchestrate it so that he can use a, a political system of an, a vast, strong empire like this to get this couple to Bethlehem so that they would have Jesus there, surely he can work in our own lives, in our own circumstances, to bring about his plan and his glory and the more we, we see that truth and rest in that truth, the more confidence it's going to give us as we think about God in our lives. So that's the place. Excuse me, that's the time. Let's think about uh, the place. The place is important. Bethlehem is important. 
because it establishes Jesus's credentials. It establishes Jesus's credentials. One of the things that establishes his credentials is that Jesus is coming from the line of David. That's very important. Uh, It's been promised throughout that a Messiah, uh, this King of Kings is going to come. He's going to be part of this line of David. Joseph, his earthly father, is from that line, which pushes them, which is why they're having to go to Bethlehem. They've got to go to the the place where uh, they are from to go and register and take part uh, in this census. And so that leads us to the second part of of Jesus' credentials, uh, in a sense. Some 700 years, think about that, 700 years before this happens, there's a prophet that stands up and he makes this declaration. It'll sound familiar to you. It comes from Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Bring that in what is happening in this passage here. And we see that God is bringing them to Bethlehem so they can have this child. But by that taking place, he's establishing his credentials in a sense that we see that fulfillment taking place. It gives us greater confidence in him. If, if he's going to come and say, uh, uh, die for us and have this message of forgiveness and grace and salvation, certainly we need to know the background to that. We need to be confident that he's able to do that. And this is part of that story, pushing us in this direction to believe this truth. The takeaway for us is that God is faithful to his promises. As he can be faithful in such a a dramatic thing happening that was promised years and years and years ago, certainly he can be trusted today with the promises that he gives us today that are worthy for our lives to rest upon that it can take the, the weight of our lives, the weight of our worry, the weight of our stress, the weight of our confusion, the weight of our anger. Uh, his promises can handle those things and support those things and is enough for us in these moments. The last one is his circumstance. The circumstance of his birth gives us confidence as we think about the pattern that it establishes for us, the pattern of Jesus' birth. And this is what I mean by, by the pattern of his birth and what this introduces to us. Think about the circumstances of his, of his birth. They weren't the glamorous circumstances at all. Uh, they display, if all they display to us is his humility, the, the humbleness of how he comes into our world, into being. In verse 7, Joseph and Mary are in a bad situation, a bad, tight spot. It says what? She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available to them. Think about the circumstances of this, how bad off they are. That Jesus, the first night, has to be placed in an old feeding trough. If, if you're a mom, if, if you have children, you think about, can you imagine the first night that you have your child He's got to sit in this little wooden manger. That's where he's going to spend his first 24 hour, first night of sleep, if they even sleep at night. And Luke is saying, this is how brutal it is. This is how bad it is. Again, we know this story. We've got all these nativity scenes set up around our houses and in the community where, where Jesus is in this, this little manger there for us. We're so familiar with this. 
But Luke is saying this is how bad off it was, how brutal it was. Mary and Joseph, they don't even have the connections. They get a place to stay. They're that poor. They're that hard up. They're that desperate that their child has to sleep on this old wooden trough. And what Luke is doing is setting up, this is the pattern of Christ. This is the life of Christ. Think about it like this. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, the God of all power, all glory, all self-sufficiency, all knowledge, all these things. And where is he living the first night on earth? He's not in a palace. There's there's no grand, elaborate, luxurious, royal reception. None of those things at all. But he's stuck in a manger. And it sets the pattern. It sets the pace for this is why he came. He doesn't come to destroy, but he comes to be destroyed. He doesn't come to judge, but to be judged. It's the pattern that he's establishing. If he did come to judge, and he did come with power, and if he did come with might... There would be nobody left. None of us would be able to to stay in the wake of that. But when he comes again, because of how he came the first time, we will be able to stand. We will be able to be with him. And it depicts for us the mission of Christ. A mission of coming to serve, coming to give his life. That's the pattern. His humility, his being born, him resting in this manger, his parents being in the situation that they are, Uh, sets the pattern for us. And it shows us what we can expect from him. Let me close uh, with this and close this prayer. The other day I was reminded of the power and the drama, if you will, of an intervention. Intervention where you have somebody in your life, a loved one, you've got to sit them down and say, you've got to change. I think one of the cable shows channels had a whole TV show about intervening in somebody's life. And it's where a family and friends, they take an individual and they sit them down, often by surprise and often unsuspecting on their part, and they sit them down in a room, and each person goes around the room and says, in essence, I love you. I'm concerned about you. You are blowing up your life. You are doing damage to yourself. You need help. You need correction. I want to help you do that. Person after person after person in the room, love, compassion, love, compassion, over and over and over again on that individual. And you've got to think, why can't it just be like somebody that sits down with them, you know, over a meal at Waffle House and says, you know what, things are really bad. You're really messing things up. I love you. You've got to get help. Why can't it just be some kind of one-on-one conversation? It's got to be this, this group of people It's got to be dramatic. It's got to be heavy. It's got to be weighty just to get them to move budge an inch for helping themselves towards change. Think about this passage. This is a dramatic event. It is a dramatic thing for the God of the universe to orchestrate uh, a political uh, census so that his son can be born at this time. It is a dramatic thing. For God, who has promised from ages ago, saying, my son is going to be born here at this, in this place, for him to orchestrate that thing to happen. It is a dramatic thing for the Savior of the universe to be born in a manger. For him to be born in an old wooden trough. It is a dramatic thing to know that at the end of his life, 
his head is going to lay on another piece of wood where he's going to be nailed to it. It is a dramatic thing. And he does it because he loves us. Not because he's trying to communicate, you know, a message, everything's going to be all right, and, you know, you're going to get by, just, you know, hang in there. He says, no, I am coming to save you. You need more than somebody saying, hang in there, buck up, you can do this. You need somebody to save you. And this dramatic way that he comes, he tells, he's communicating, this is how bad it is. This is how much you need me. This is how bad your sin is, that it has to be like this. And so as you think about Christmas, you think about Advent, you think about Christ coming and how he has come, remember the confidence that we can have in him, knowing that he's gone to these lengths for me. How much can I trust him with everything in my life? with all the things that he has shown me and given to me. Will you pray with me? Father God, we come to you uh, this morning, and we are in need of your grace. We're in need of your sufficiency. We're in need of your care. We're thankful that you are a God who loves, that you have come. And we pray that the circumstances, the place, the time of your arrival would give us great hope, would give us great confidence, would give us great joy, that this would not be just another season of Christmas, another season of Advent, but the weight of all that you've done would resonate and rest upon us so that we can know in our heart of hearts that all is well because you are on the throne. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.